Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to get into your word, for it to challenge us and to shape us, for the fact that you, Lord, are the one who is able to lead us and guide us um, and to teach us how to live. So as we focus that in today, would you just encourage us to live it out as we leave? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, just a curious question, how um, kind of a survey question, do you have a favorite kind of Christmas decoration? And so, I mean, like, how many of you guys are, you just love trees? You're like, the Christmas tree is the greatest thing on the planet. You, you love decorating Christmas trees. If you could go see the Christmas tree display at the Riverside Convention Center, you would go. I'm just kidding. But the, uh, how many of you guys are wreath people? Do we have any wreath people? You just, like, love wreaths, and wreaths are your deal? There's a few of you. That's cool. I met a few today. It's, a, it's kind of like the wreath is the redheaded stepchild of the Christmas season now. But um, any Yule Log people? You're like, he just loves, I'm just kidding. But um, yeah, how many, any you know, house lights. You just love the Christmas house lights. Yeah, that's, that's the big favorite of our family. In fact, we're the people that like to go out to find the other people who spend millions of dollars on their street and somehow have gathered together. So we'll go out to Ontario and be like, <laughs> this is great. I don't have to do this in my house. You know, I just stare at everybody's um, expensive lights and I'm just watching. Them. I want to take a photo of their power meter and see what's going on there. <clears throat> but the reality is you've got this, these homes and stuff. We like going there and watching those. And then how many of you, I may have left out your favorite. How many of you love those big blow-up things that go in people's yards? You know, like the, the chili frosty, you know, that's sitting there shaking. I think that's funny, especially in Southern California. So the, uh, the, there's all kinds of cool decorations, but lights to me are the one that capture me the most. And I, I, maybe it runs in my family when my daughter was really little. I'm talking little, like months old. We would... It was Christmas time. We placed her in front of the tree and she just did this. And just stare for hours, just staring at the Christmas tree lights. And we're just like, oh, that's awesome. Now I have the same problem at BJ's with the TVs. It's like, so I must run in the family. So the reality is I, I, I do. I love light and it, it focuses me and I enjoy when there's stars in the sky and it's a clear night just staring up and seeing the Milky Way and seeing the, the little satellites roll by or, or checking out the planets. Or, or the other option is um, when, you, when you climb up on a high hill around here. Have you ever done that and just stared out down into the valley? Some hills that give you some great vistas of all the lights. One time I was in an airplane flying back and I was sitting next to a young lady who never had been to Southern California and it was nighttime as we were flying in and she was gonna close her, close her little hood and I'm like, no, no, don't do that. Lift it up look out for the next 10 minutes and watch what happens. And just then we start climbing just over the ridge and you can start to see you know, Palm Springs and Palm Desert and then starts to lay out. And suddenly there's this small bunch of lights and then it just grows until it's like a, a mass of billions of lights just surrounding every direction you can see above you and below you. You're like flying in a star vista because of just all the lights on the ground. The lights are beautiful. But you ever thought about trying to follow a light? I mean, I like staring at lights. I like enjoying lights, but following light. I mean, other than the idea of taking the laser beam and running it around on the ground for the dog to chase, which I hear actually makes them crazy. Don't do that. Is, is, uh, I have no concept of the idea of following light. And yet Christmas is filled with light imagery. And Jewish people would have had a concept of following light. Very easily. I mean, you think of the Magi that followed the star. 
You think of these pictures of light in the Old Testament and following light comes up very often. So it's no wonder that Jesus will grab that as we look at what he's saying in John chapter eight. So grab your Bible. Let's look at this motif of light today in John chapter eight, beginning in verse 12. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and grab one of those and turn open it. If you don't, there are Bibles under the seats and you can check it out on page 894 and be right there with us as we begin to examine this passage. Now, Immediately, if you're one of the olive branchers and you're a Bible student and you've been, you like try to prep ahead and get ready, you're like, time out, Greg. No, we are supposed to be in John 7, 53 and go through the story to verse 11. Why are you skipping the, my favorite story in the Bible? It's the woman caught in adultery. I mean, it's an awesome story. Why are you skipping over this? Because it actually doesn't belong in John here. Wasn't in the original, I may just destroyed your Christianity. I hope not. But the, but the reality is that over time, some things have found their way into the text. And this is one of those places that we know as modern Christians that this was not in the original Greek manuscript of John. We have lots of old Greek manuscripts and it's not there. In fact, this section of scripture right there with the woman caught in adultery shows up also in Luke, can show up in other areas of John. So it doesn't necessarily fit here all the time. It's here in your Bibles because it's traditional to be in this location, but it is not part of probably John's original writing. In fact, what I want you to realize is by that sitting there, it interrupts the, the picture of what's actually going on with Jesus by the time we pick him up in verse 12. You see, Jesus is still at the Feast of Tabernacles on the final great day. He's still teaching. And uh, part of what we talked about last week was at this Tabernacles feast, which is kind of where they brought all the, all the produce that they had uh, brought from the harvest. It was the final exciting celebration of the year. People loved this one. They'd hang out and sit in makeshift tents and stuff outside of Jerusalem, and they would celebrate together. And in their excitement of everything going on, they would take their produce and, and give it. And then there was another one where they would take water out of the Pool of Siloam in this giant cup and walk it all the way in while people are singing and cheering. And it was a picture of God's pouring out of his blessing and the Holy Spirit, and we covered that last week, a final symbol would occur late that evening. As it began to get dark, they would take a, in the women's quarters, and what was the women's court was available for men and women to be in, so it was kind of the most public court um, the Gentiles weren't allowed in, but they would take this giant menorah and they light it, and it would just blaze this light throughout the entire temple grounds, all the way out through Jerusalem. This light, this, these giant torches were just blazing and people would sing all night and dance as they worshiped God and his provision of this light. Now Jesus, as we see in verse 20, is speaking these words in the treasury and the treasury is in the court of the women. He's near these lamps at this high feast day and he is turning to everybody and he says these words in verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so very quickly, he stands there. Notice if, you, if this had been a different day, it doesn't make sense, but he's standing there with this light emblazoned where people are worshiping God and he's saying, I am the light, not of just the temple, of the world. Not of just Jews, of everybody. I'm the light of the world. And if you'll walk with me, boom, you will not walk in darkness so follow. And so Jesus literally tells the people, follow him because he is the light. And that's a strange thought, following light. How do you follow light? It's a little fuzzy. It's like Jesus says, I'm the light. And you're like, okay, that doesn't make much sense. What's on the back screen? 
And the, the light was kind of diffusively coming through while Jesus is speaking and he's saying, follow me. Now, there's a little bit clarity going on for them because the festival was a picture actually of what happened when Moses had led the people out of Egypt. Now, if we remember that, if you're new to your Bible, it's at the beginning of your Bible in the book of Exodus, and Moses is this guy who God says, set my people free from Egypt. And so Moses does, he gets up and he gets the people together, and, and God does these miracles and all this stuff happens. They go through the Red Sea, and they're on the other side. One of the things that happens at the Red Sea, and post that, is God appears in a manifestation of a cloud by day, this pillar of cloud, and it was a pillar of fire by night. It's really important when you're in a desert because what happens is a cloud would cover you during the day to keep the sun off of you in order so you didn't die of heat exposure. But the cloud would also be a pillar of light at night, which keeps the, you warm because it's freezing cold in the desert at night, but at the same time keeps wild animals away. And therefore, it was this dual purpose of God's provision, but also it, was a, it would move. And as the pillar moved, so the people of Israel would get up, pack their stuff up, and go after the light. Jesus banks on this illustration. And he says, I'm the light of the world. I'm the pillar of light. Follow me, and you won't walk in darkness. Follow me, and you will journey forward into the light of life itself. Now, that's fascinating. What does he mean by follow him? How do you follow Jesus? What does it look like? How do we apply this to our lives? And I would love to get into this. Let's do that right now, except the Pharisees are gonna get in the way, sorry. Verse 13, they don't like what he said. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony's not true. So we would love to get into Jesus to illustrate what he's doing. The Pharisees say, no, 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 no. I don't believe you. Tell me the truth. You're talking for yourself. That's not okay. You know, that's opposite of our culture, isn't it? Our culture, somebody says, I'm this. And we're all like, yeah. Their culture, you say, I'm this. They go, says who? They wanted multiple attestations. They wanted proof that you were who you said you were. You don't just get to say who you are. So Jesus says, I'm the light. And they go, prove it. How, how do you know? How can you say this? Your testimony is invalid. You're talking all by yourself. And Jesus then refers and answers the question. He says, guys, no, no, no. You can trust my declaration is true, that I am the light. And here's why. And he says three very simple things. We're not going to take a lot of time on this because we've got a lot more we want to cover. But basically he says, number one, I know myself better than anyone knows themselves. I know where I come from and I know where I'm going. Number two, he then says, I'm not full of sin and a mess like you guys. So I don't judge in the same way. Number three, the father's got my back. So that's what he basically says. He starts off in verse 14. Jesus answered, even though I, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. I know where I came from. That's his origin. I know where I'm going, but you do not know where I came from or where I am going. Here's a man who just declared, not only do I know myself, I know what circumstances I was born in. I know why I'm here on earth. You know, some of us in this room right now are thinking, man, I would love to know why God has me here on earth. Even some of us as Christians are still like, God, I'm still trying to figure it out. Jesus knew exactly why he was on earth. And he knew exactly how he would die and for what purpose. Now, I know none of us can know the hour or the day that we'll die. Even if you think you're trying to plan it, you don't know. I hope that's not true, and if that's the case, get some help, because life is worth living. Keep listening. 
The reality is Jesus knew both the hour and the way in which he would die. He knew his destiny and he knew his origin. And therefore he knew all the pieces in between. It's a way of Hebrews in Hebrew thinking to say, I, I got myself made. I know myself perfectly. So I can testify. Second, he says, you judge according to the flesh, verse 15. I judge no one. And we as Americans were like, yeah, see, Jesus doesn't judge anybody. Time out. That's not, how, that's not what he means. What Jesus is actually declaring is he's saying, you guys judge with wrong purposes and wrong motivations. You judge from sinful positions with all your legal ease and all your different pieces and all your thoughts and your appearances and your value systems. No, 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 no. I don't judge from the flesh. I don't judge in that way. But even if I do judge, notice he does judge then, my judgment is true. It is not I alone who judge, but I am the father who sent me. Now, the reason I'm not gonna go deep into this is we've already covered this in chapter five. Jesus has already had this argument with these guys before. And so for all of us reading the book, we're all kind of going like, can we move on? Can we do a different series? How long are we gonna be in John? This is like repetitive. And, and the reality is that John is repetitive on purpose because he's trying to show you these guys aren't listening. These guys aren't, it's bouncing off their heads. And so he's saying, listen, I've already told you that in a sense. In the law, he goes on, it's written that the testimony of two people is true. Well, I'm one who bears witness about myself and my father who sent me bears witness about me. Note the miracles. And he's already kind of said this before. And yet, look, they don't listen. Verse 19, they said to him, well, where's your father? Haven't we covered this ground who his father is? At chapter five, again, chapter six, there's over and over, Jesus has declared who his father is. Last week, we talked about this again. And so Jesus looks at them, he says, you know neither my father, or you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And these words he spoke in the treasury and he taught them in the temple, but no one arrested him because this hour had not yet come. So he said to them, what? Read, read the text, verse 21. So he said to them, say it out loud, again. It's important you note that. Note back up at verse 12. What's it start with? Again. 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 Again, anybody got this? Jesus is, re, is referring to it again. So he says, I'm going away. You'll seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. He just said this last chapter. This time they go like, well, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you can't come? Last time they're like, is he gonna go to the Gentiles? Where's he gonna go? We can't get him. Where's he gonna kill himself? They're trying to figure it out, but Jesus goes on. And so he, said, so, the, so he said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world. I am not of this world, even though I drive a Bentley. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Side note. Um, I told you, you would, uh, I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Just stop right there. How many times do you have to tell them they would die in their sins? If you seek me, you're not gonna find me. You're gonna die in your sin, he says in verse 21. Well, where are you going? Look, unless you believe that I am he, you're gonna die in your sins. What is Jesus doing here? Again, he says it. Again, he says it. Jesus is pleading with those who aren't listening for them to believe. Jesus is literally leaning into these guys going, I know you don't hear me. Come on, listen to me. 
Listen to me. If you don't believe that I am he, you're going to die in your sins. And this is a very interesting reference. Again, back up to Moses. Moses is standing there. He's just killed a guy 40 years earlier. He's been on the lamb, running around out in the wilderness where Egypt can't get a hold of him. And God does. God shows up, telephones in with a burning bush, shows up, and Moses just kind of drops his staff, freaked out, and comes forward. And God says, now go, let my people go. In the middle of that scene, Moses says, okay, I'm supposed to do this, but who am I supposed to say sent me? And God says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. The existent one. I am who I am. This is picked up. This language is picked up by all the prophets. And one of the major ones is Isaiah. And Isaiah sits there and he says, Israel, repent and do these things and do this. And when you see these things, you will know that I am he, the Lord says. And this term, I am he, is consistently translated into two Greek words, it's ego, which means I, amy, which means I am. And so the way you would literally translate this verse is he says, unless you believe that I, I am, you will die in your sins. And he, the best way to put this is Jesus says, unless you believe that I am really the Lord, you will die in your sins. That changes this picture. You could read this simply as a spiritual leader standing there begging people to listen to him and believe what he's teaching. Or you can stop and realize that this is the God of the universe who has shown up in the flesh to beg us to hear how much he loves us and what he's doing to try to reach us and save us. Some of us in this room have been coming to church a long time and you're still not listening. Oh, you're hearing it, but you're not listening Sure, Jesus has saved you, but he's not your Lord. Sure, you got who Jesus is, but you don't see it. It's falling off. We've got questions. And what about this? And you're not researching. You're not looking. You're just hearing. And we're not listening. And he's saying, listen to me. Pharisees, listen to me. I mean, this isn't the KKK that he's talking to here. This isn't the local Satanist club. He's talking to the Pharisees. These are the religious people who've got it all together. They, they know what to do. They are right with God. And everybody else is like, that's the guy. That's why I use English because we all like the English accent. We're like, ooh, intelligence. And that's how they viewed, they viewed the Pharisees. These guys know what they're talking about. This is how you get to God. And Jesus is going, no, you guys don't get it. You're going to die in your sins. And I don't think he's sitting there going, you will die in your sins. <laughs> Judge you. No, he just said, I don't judge. He's pleading with them. I'm telling you again, listen to me. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe that I have come to save you, that I am he. And they had all of this mess in front of them. They couldn't see that he was the light, that he was shining through. He was trying to get their attention. I mean, look at this. You just see Jesus like frustrated. So they said to him, well, who are you? And Jesus is like, so verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them after he pulled his hair out, just what I have, no, I'm just kidding. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning. That's what I've been telling you the whole time. I have much to say to, about you and much to judge about you, but he who sent me is true and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. That's a gulp. I got so much to judge. You got so much sin to deal with. 
You don't hear me, you're going to die in it. And, and hear me this morning, the same plead comes through the ages to us. See, you live in a culture that tells you you're fine. You're good. God loves you. He wants you with open arms. And yet Jesus says, if you don't trust that I am God, you're going to die in your sin. It's so much easier to believe we don't have sin than to listen to Jesus. It's so much easier to think we're, we were born this way and look, I'm genetically prone to these things and it's just what I do. I don't have sin, I make mistakes. I've learned from my mistakes. That way, that's why me and God were good. Guys, no, Jesus says if you don't trust that he is God who's come to do something radical to save us from this state, we die in those sins. It's like they've wrapped around us and sin drags you to the bottom of the spiritual scale. And all the misery and horror that goes with that is accompanied. And he says, no, I've come to set you free, otherwise you will die in it. And it will drag you down. He's saying this while people desperate to get out of their sins are dragging animals to this temple, having their necks cut, their blood poured out, all in ritual to release their sins. And here they are in the midst of all this. And he's saying, if you don't hear me, you're going to die in your sin. Please, listen. And they still don't get it. Verse 27, they didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. It was like the light was still hazy. Sure, it was shining, but it wasn't clear. What are we talking about here? Right, you're the light? How do you follow this light? What do you mean? Can I trust you? Nah, come on. This religious stuff's in my way. Right, this tolerance stuff's in my way. Whatever it is. And yet Jesus says, okay, let's make this clear. Verse 28, so he said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. He was saying these things, many believed in him. In essence, all this haziness, all this lack of clarity of the light. He says, you want to know how to see it rightly. You want to know how to get a focus. Then look here, because it's at the cross. When you lift the son of man up, then you'll know that I am God. I am he who came for you. I am he, the Lord. When it's seeing the cross becomes the focus of the light. It's in the cross that God's glory and God is known the best. The light of Christ is most clearly seen through that prism behind me. And I mean to make a big deal about this because guys, we need something to clear clear up our vision. Um, Last year, I had the wonderful opportunity. Me and my family got to pack into a couple of cars and go with Bill and Marla Getty and a friend of ours uh, to Death Valley. And we, we'd driven up. We saw some ghost towns and drove over Panamint and down through Panamint into the val- Death Valley, and we're hanging out down there. And it was the winter time, so the sun was starting to set pretty early. And so we didn't get to see everything we really wanted to, but you know, we were like oh, on our way out. But one of the problems was as we were driving out, one of the roads, the main highways had been washed out, basically. You couldn't get on it. So they dug this dirt road all the way through the valley, all the way out, over a little, a little stream and stuff, all the way out. And, and so we get in these four-wheel drive things. We're off we go, you know, all of us kind of driving. I'm driving behind Bill. And I think Bill's taking off in front of me. And so this is not dirt. This is silty dirt. 
And so you don't turn your brights on in salty dirt. Anybody ever tried that before? Like, I can't, you know, you're all, so you got to keep your lights down low and you're trying to drive and I'm trying to follow Bill because he's known, he knows where he's going. And it's like these two little dots of two little red demon eyes of his taillights driving off out in front of me. And, and, and he's driving hard. And so the dust is like in my face. I'm like, I, I think that's him. I think that's him. And then we'd stop for just long enough for the dust to settle just enough. There he is. Okay. And we'd take off and keep going. Guys, for the Pharisees, the dust of religion was flying in their face. They couldn't see God's light shining, trying to lead them in a direction. And some of us today, you're still here at church trying to be a good person. You think you've got all this made. You don't, I ask you, what are your sins? And you're like, sins? I don't have any sins. I've been praying and going to church since I was a kid. I got this down. Others of us, the dust of tolerance is flying in our face. And we're like, what are you talking about sin? God loves me for who I am. He made me like this and I love him back and it's all good sin. And the dust is flying in our face and the cross helps us see it clearly because in the cross, we see all of the obedience of God amounts to nothing because we all have sin. And he had to be crushed for our sin. Something had to be done to set us free. On the other side, we have all, yes, God loves us, but there was a price to pay. A deep price that had to be met, that had to be found. And on the cross, suddenly, a a, a strange question that is asked of so many people, how can a loving God send people to hell, comes out. How can, a, how can somebody hate sin so badly and yet love sinners? Yet here at the cross, God hates sin so badly, he himself who came was willing to bear the very punishment of hell itself on his own soul and being on the cross that he would show us how much he really loves us. If you're not ever listened, listen now. How else does a God express that he loves you so greatly, but he comes himself to bear the very horror that none of us want to go through? That he's just trying to wake our souls up to the reality that we are mired down like blacksmiths with mad hammers and we're shaping ourselves in our own image and all it's doing is tearing our souls to pieces with the sin of just whacking at ourselves, mutilating ourselves, let alone what we do to each other. And he comes, there's no rules that are going to get you through that. There's no permission that's going to make it out. No, there's only the work of, a, of one who I've sent bearing the very evil of our destruction to give us life out of love. It's the very conundrum of how do we hear difficult truth with great grace? It's the cross. Because the cross reveals to us, if we examine the cross, we see that Jesus is God. He is the great God of love and justice. He is the great God of truth and grace. He is the great God of the poor and the rich. For here is the God who owns everything, who has given everything away to identify with all of us who have nothing. You sit in your pain at your home with your back or your, or your neck or your stomach, or your feet, and you wonder, why am I going through this suffering? Why do I face this pain? And God hasn't stood back and said, I don't get pain. No, he suffered greatly that he might identify with each one of us. 
at the cross. If we examine the cross, it is our enlightenment. It is the two dots in the distance. It is the pillar moving forward as we follow focus on the cross. If you're looking for wisdom, go to the cross. For it is there, he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will see that he is the Lord who has come. When we examine the cross, it enlightens us that no one is beyond hope. No one is beyond hope. Jesus is in here begging the Pharisees. These are the very people that will crucify him. The very people who will stand mocking him at the cross. And from that very cross, he will, your father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. How at the cross is he able to yield so much mockery and shame only to give back grace and forgiveness? Because no one is beyond hope. Hear me, no one in here, you are not beyond hope. You have not sinned a sin so dastardly God cannot forgive it if you come to the cross. There's no one who will meet in Starbucks, on the street, who will cut you off. It doesn't matter where you meet them. At your workplace, in your neighborhood, there is no one who you will meet is beyond hope. Because the work of the cross forgives. It is grace beyond measure. But the cross also has its costs. When we examine the cross, we find a new identity in Christ. Oh, is our world so obsessed with who are we and what do we need to be and I don't want to know what my identity is and yet here at the cross, he says, this is who you are. This was his or- what he was brought to and this is where he was going towards. This was his identity. It was the origin. It was the point of all creation. It's what everything comes to is the cross. And here we find our identity. Paul would say it this way. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Can we say that? That when we come to the cross, we don't live anymore. Those tapes that run in your head that tell you how horrible you are, how great you are, whatever it is, those tapes die at the cross. Mutilated and murdered with our Lord. No longer do you live, but Christ lives through you and in you by his spirit. You are his temple. You lead out, you take after him, and he's dwelling in you to shape you and change you and make you. Your identity is no longer Republican. It's no longer Coronian. It's no longer Democrat. It's no longer found in your sexual desires. It is no longer found in your education. It's no longer found in your work. It's not even in your name. It is in Christ. And until we as a church and we as Christians come to the radical notion that at the cross, our identities are found, we will continue to wrestle. Because the life that we live now is in the flesh, or in the flesh is lived by faith through the Son of God, sorry, who loved us and gave himself for us. And from here becomes this billowing of everyday kind of living. You see, with this, with this kind of thing comes a restraint on our lives. Jesus takes up the concept of the cross earlier in Luke and he says, if anyone would come after me, if you're gonna follow the light, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Deny yourself, tell yourself, no. A concept so lost, self-gratification has become so clear and Jesus says, no, it is self-denial to follow me. It is the cross that you bear. 
And that makes sense when we're, an ident- we're an identified as Christians. You see, I mean, none of us would really believe a guy who's sitting there at Mac and I, just eating a double-double, like, just like, ah. Anybody like double-doubles? I love double-doubles. <laughs> Get everything on it, just dripping with sauce. You're like, you walk up to that guy and you're like, dude, that looks good. He's like, yeah, man. He's like, he starts talking with him. And he's like, you really seem to enjoy that. Oh, I love these double-doubles. I have one every week. Wow. He's like, yeah, man. I've been a vegan for 19 years. <laughs> Nobody would believe him. Vegans don't eat meat, period. His identity restricts his desires. Our identity as Christians restricts our desires. It calls us to a way of living. It calls us to a life of the cross. It calls us to seeing ourselves to follow Jesus and therefore we take up the name Christian. And yes, it's a heavy call. I'm not saying that's easy and we all fail, amen? But praise God, there's grace at the cross. There's not pride at the cross, it's humility at the cross. And in that humbling of ourselves, there is joy and peace. Everything we run and seek for comes birthed in us in a light of life as we follow the light. As we examine the cross, this therefore begins to open us to a new thing. It leads us to a way of love where we may need to learn that we've been restricted. No longer can we be judgmental. No longer can we be these kind of critics and no racists, whatever you want to call it. At the same time, there is a way of love that's presented to us. In the cross, Jesus gave himself up. He didn't have to. He gave himself away where he could have just pressed the reset button, started with a whole new creation. No, God chose to come, dwell with us, love us in such a manner he would bear our sins and therefore teach us the way of love and forgiveness. And so there's all kinds of verses that pop out. Don't take vengeance, God says, for vengeance is mine. Oh man, one of my kids struggles with this so bad. He's in he. I got three he's, so you don't know who I'm talking about. He's in elementary school, and man, he is just, he's got this kid he can't stand. He's his enemy. That's how he calls him. It's my enemy. These guys are my enemies. Why? They steal my lunch seat. They, 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 they make fun of me when I do something wrong. They think they're better than me. My enemy is like, he can't stand these kids. And I'm sitting there going, hey, buddy, come on, man. You know, God tells us we got to love our enemies. I don't want to love my enemies. I'm like, but God says he's going to take vengeance for you. And he's like, I want vengeance. I'm like, who's better at vengeance, God or you? Me. But I still want it. I mean, he's just like, I'm not going to let this go. It's not, he's just, why do I have to do this? I want to do this. She's going to be right. Ah, You know, welcome to the pastor's house. Okay. (laughs) But right there, it's not easy to live a life of love. But maybe in your life, there's somebody you need to forgive right now. Maybe there's a conversation with your spouse you need to have right now from a way of love, of self-sacrifice, where you don't put you first, but you put them first, and so you listen for the first time. Maybe it's somebody at work that you need to get back and get right with. Oh, sure, maybe you're not gonna be best friends anymore, but at least you've taken the step forward to say, 
I will eat the wrath that I had for you because Christ ate the wrath that he had for me. The way of love is a way of self-sacrifice for the betterment of everyone. And maybe that means we need to get out of our suburbs to go care for those who otherwise don't have. Maybe that means we need to step up and we need to serve and care in ways that we never could before. And maybe it's not about my agenda and my time and my kids being great at things. Maybe it's about my kids learning the way of love as well. The way of love, we preach on all these points, but I'll just give you one more. Examine the cross, lives you to a life that pleases God. In Romans chapter six, verse six, it says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Jesus said to those of us who have not accepted him as Lord, if we have not seen him as God, you will die in your sin. Sin binds you, ties you, and sinks you down. It corrupts your soul and causes you to be a person you never desired to be. And the whole time, all you will do is choose what you think is good. It's insidious. So that when you're in that state that it brings upon you, it will offer itself as its own solution, only to make you worse. And until you've ever lived in a situation in which you do something that you wish you could stop and you know you can't, be it a compulsion, be it some kind of situation of an addiction where you hate what you do, but you still do it. Until you've come to know that sin is that very thing, you will not see the freedom that Christ offers. And we'll dive deeper into this as Jesus gets into this next week. But the point is simply this, you have been freed at the cross. For the bonds of sin have been broken by Christ at the cross that you can walk and live no longer enslaved to sin but you can please God. You can know him and pray to him. You can see his word and put it in your life. You can walk and praise him because he has given you the light of life. It's called eternal life. And this message, my friends, is there. It's found in his words and it's for us to have as we follow after him. And it doesn't stop here. This Christmas, we're not just celebrating light. We're celebrating the fact that Christmas is worshiped around the world or not Christmas, Christ is worshiped around the world. Christmas is celebrated around the world. And that's why we got this great map. Isn't this map beautiful back here? Felicia, our communications person, she just did a great job pulling this together. But on every continent behind me, because we didn't put Antarctica, Christ is worshiped. And he will be worshiped in every people group. You know I'm so confident about that? Because of another picture of a, of a day in which the Feast of Tabernacles will be celebrated. It's found in the book of Revelation, chapter seven. I'll read this to you. And I'll put a little bit of commentary in it. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So this is the climax of this section of, of the book. It says they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So all tribes, peoples, and languages, everyone, Aztecs, Mayans, Indian, Native Americans, Celts, 
from the past, Chinese, you name them, they are found, every tongue, every tribe, every nation, worshiping God. And how are they doing so? They're standing before the throne, of the, before the lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand. This is the very palm branches they would have at the Feast of Tabernacles. They would shake them as they began to sing the glories of God. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. They're standing in the very throne room, the very temple of God in heaven. And all the angels are standing around the throne. All the elders and the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor, power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And I said, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. I want you to think about that as the great dust storms. The ones that fog us from God, the persecutions and the evils that would come. And they have washed their robes, made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Shelter, tabernacle, shall hunger no more. Neither shall they thirst anymore. Come to me, all you who need a drink. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Huh, sounds like the cloud. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Oh, we should follow the light. He will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the picture of the destiny of the peoples of earth if the church will live its purpose as we follow the light, to preach of that light. And it all centers on the cross. I hope you meditate on the cross this Christmas. And I hope it guides us as it leads us in the light. Let's pray. Father, thank you for such a symbol and image, for such a truth and an event in history that reminds us of your great love for us and that you are after us. Would you help us to follow after you? And would you help us to listen and know that you are indeed him who saves us from our sins? In Jesus' name, amen.